0: You're listening to the Informal Bible Study, a casual and applicational look at the Scriptures. I'm John Stonge, and it's great to have you with us today. In just a few moments, we're going to be looking at Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, and several related Scriptures. And we're going to be talking about the fact that God is self-existent and sovereign. But before we do, just a couple quick things I wanted to share with you. First of all, you'll notice that the format of today's episode is a little bit different. I'm experimenting with something, and I'm hoping that this gives you the opportunity to receive some additional teaching time and additional teaching content by sharing a recording that was just recorded of my teaching on this subject in front of a live congregation. It's about twice as long as what I typically record in studio, And if this is something that you think is a workable idea and something that you'd like me to continue doing, please let me know. My email address can be found in this episode's description, and I'd love to hear from you if this is a format that you'd like me to continue to pursue for this podcast in coming weeks. Like I said, I guess the benefit of it would be Additional teaching time, additional teaching content, and sometimes you'd even get to experience the reaction of a live group as they're interacting with these scriptures. So again, let me know. Send me an email if this is something that you want to give me some feedback on. Let me know which format you prefer better when I record this content in studio or when I record it in front of a live group. I also want to make mention to you our website, desirejesus.com. And on our website, you'll find our blog, our online Bible studies, our bookstore, devotional resources, links to both of our podcasts, and also the ability to sign up for our weekly newsletter. If you're not on our weekly newsletter, we'd encourage you to sign up for that at DesireJesus.com. Now let's get right into today's teaching. Good morning again good to see everybody hope everybody had an enjoyable week i think weather-wise this was just about one of the more perfect weeks of the summer we actually had a a picnic the other night at our house for a group of people that work with my wife and uh, i thought as we were doing that i thought you know i need to get a fire going in the fire pit so i lit a fire in the fire pit it was real nice i noticed people kind of camped out right around it like they were doing some backyard camping in our yard but i also noticed that the nice breeze that was coming through, managed to kind of blow all the smoke pretty much for the whole evening, right onto the deck where most people were were seated. So they went home smelling like they had been very much at a bonfire. And one of the guys commented to me, he's like, boy, the weather was real nice, um, but I, I do feel like I breathed in smoke for a little bit too long. And I said, yes, but you didn't have any bugs or mosquitoes to contend with, right? And he's like, you know what? You're right, I will take the smoke over the bugs and mosquitoes. So it ended up being nice. Um, we've been, over the course of the past few months, taking a look at what scripture tells us in regard to who is God. And we've been looking at various aspects of God's nature. We've been looking at the attributes of God. And we've been talking about what these things look like and how the Lord utilizes his attributes to be a blessing in our lives. And today we're going to be talking about two additional attributes. In fact, these are the final two attributes we're going to look at in our study of this subject. Today we're talking about the fact that God is self-existent and sovereign. Two key things that we should understand about God's nature, the fact that He's self-existent and sovereign. Now, like we've done for the past group of weeks as we've been taking a look at what Scripture says about this subject, uh, we're going to look at a variety of Scriptures, but we're going to start today by looking at just two verses verses from Colossians chapter 1 starting with verse 16. So we're going to look at Colossians 1, verses 16 and 17. And this is what we read in that passage. And we're going to come and revisit this in a few moments as well. But it says this, For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, And in him, all things hold together. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word, and thank you for the privilege that it is to be able to look at it together today. And we pray, Lord, that as we read your word, as we study it, as we meditate on the content of what you've revealed to us, that you'd help us to understand more about you. We pray that our walk with you would grow. We pray that our relationship with you would be strengthened And we also pray, Lord, that our appreciation for just your nature and for how you interact with what you've created, we pray that that would grow as well. So, Lord, again, we thank you for the privilege to be able to look at your word now. We pray that by your grace and in your power that you would speak to us. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So various aspects about God's nature are so different from our, our daily human experience that I think it can be challenging for us at times to comprehend them. And I think in time, as our trust in the Lord matures, we may come to, you know, a moment where we accept and appreciate that these things are true of God. But I also think we'll probably spend a considerable amount of time Wondering how these things actually work. And I bring that up because in particular today, as we're talking about the fact that first off, God is self-existent, I think that that could be a concept that's challenging to wrap our minds around. It might even be difficult for some people to accept. But, uh, And I think that partly that can be because we're used to, to what we're surrounded with having an origin or having a creation point. You know, as we look around this room... You know, we, we could think about the fact or kind of, you know, uh, you know, just look at any element of, of what's going on around us in this room and say, all right, well, that light was probably created in this kind of context. And based on how it looks, it was probably made around this year. When we look at, at the, the people that we know, we see, you know, we assume an age. We're used to seeing things that have a creation point or an origin. But God's not a created being. He has no beginning, and he has no end. He is completely self-existent. And likewise, Scripture teaches us that God is sovereign. Now, in a few moments, we're going to delve into an examination of what sovereignty entails. But I'll say this at at the outset. I personally take a, a great degree of comfort in the fact that we worship a sovereign God. He is in full control. And he assures us that his eyes are upon us. So why should it matter to us that God is self-existent? And what difference does it make to believe that God is sovereign over his creation? Those are some things we're going to wrestle with this morning as we look at a variety of scriptures. So let's start with the fact that God is self-existent. And again, in Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, it says this, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That's a lot of information about what God is like and what God is doing and what he's currently accomplishing on behalf of his creation. Now, we live in an era, uh, you a particular period of time, where one of the biggest debates people engage in relates to the origin of things. That's one of the things that gets debated continually. People regularly debate how did things come about or where did things begin or what is the origin of what I see, meaning you know, how did the planets, how did the stars, how did plants and animals, how did humans, how did all these things come into existence? What caused these things? Are they simply the effect of an impersonal force that maybe sparked an initial reaction from which all things observable derived? Or is there something else that I should be aware of? Now, depending on the context of where you did your schooling, it's highly likely that much of the training that, uh, that you received related to the origin of the universe was possibly taught by people who ascribe to an evolutionary perspective. Uh, I could say that, that much of my early training in the sciences came from that perspective. And when I talk to my children about the things that they've been taught uh, in uh, in the, their school context, many of their people, although not all, many of the people that have taught them have ascribed to an evolutionary perspective in their school system. And for quite some time, this has been an area of debate uh, among humanity, particularly over the past couple hundred years. And, uh, the, the idea of, or like the, the evolutionary perspective has been particularly embraced by those who hold to a secular, godless worldview. And in that view, it's widely accepted, and I'll point out by faith, it's widely accepted, that all things came into existence through an initial act of spontaneous generation. So think about that for a second. That, that takes faith to believe that, wouldn't you say? It takes a lot of faith to think that all things came into existence through an act of spontaneous generation. I don't know if you're familiar with R.C. Sproul, but if you're not familiar with him, uh, he's worth finding out some of his teaching and and reading some of his books. He actually just passed away uh, just a short time ago. Uh, But he has a lot of very helpful theological books that he's written and a lot of videos that exist of him teaching through a lot of the content that he's written about. But I want to share a quote from R.C. Sproul with us this morning. And he says this, related to um, the origin of things. He says, There are only three possible explanations for anything that exists now it is self created, it is eternal, or it's created by something that is eternal. Now, when you look at those options, and he shared that quote when he was debating, I guess he was at, at Yale when he was in the midst of, uh, of a debate of the origin of things. Uh, when you look at those options, one of the options that he throws out there is this idea of something being self-created. Now, knowing his reading, he doesn't believe that something can be self-created. And I'll, I'll also say that I don't believe that something can be self-created. I don't think that that's a logical thought, because for something to create itself, it would already need to have been in existence to create itself. So that doesn't make sense logically for something to be self-created. So he actually throws that option out of the way. And by the way, I'll, I'll just say personally, and by the way, I, I want to be respectful to all the views that are in the room, but I'll tell you why I personally um, will never be able to accept the essence of an evolutionary perspective for the origin of the universe. And that would be because the concept of self-creation is too contradictory for me to embrace, It's not logical for something to self-create because it would have to have already been in existence for it to then create itself. So that's not an option that I think I can ascribe to in any way. The other options that we're left with are the ideas that, that something is either eternal in nature or something has been created by something that's eternal in nature. So meaning, you know, whatever we see, whatever exists... It either must be eternal in nature or have been created by something eternal. Now, based on what scripture teaches, as well as the logic that proceeds from a Christian worldview, I believe that what has been created was brought into existence by an eternal, self-existent God who has no, who has no origin. Meaning, you know, one who has always existed, one who always will. Now, Scripture testifies to the fact that God is the self-existent originator of all that we observe. And we just read from Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 and 17 in particular. And when you look at that portion of Scripture, it's speaking about God the Son, Jesus Christ. Now, we know that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit work together in perfect unity to bring creation into existence. But in that passage from Colossians, so when we're looking at Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, in that particular portion of Scripture, we're given specific details related to Jesus Christ, God the Son. And we're told that Jesus created all things in heaven and earth. He created things that we could see, and it gives us some examples of things that we cannot typically see. And not only did He create all things, but He also sustains what he created. So everything he created is being divinely held together by his infinite power. That's something that Christ does. He sustains what he's created. And it's interesting because sometimes when you think about that, and you start trying to think about that on the molecular level, you think, all right, so Jesus is actively holding molecules together. That's what that teaching would essentially be saying, right? I mean, he's holding molecules together. He's, con- he's, he's forcing the universe to continue to operate With the systems that he's established within it. He didn't just create everything, he's sustaining what he created. It's being held together by his infinite power. And God, being the one who caused what we see to come into being, he himself doesn't have a cause. Now, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about the fact that God is self-existent. We're saying God does not have a cause. And logically speaking, so when you're just thinking this through, when you're thinking about the origin of things and where things come from, logically speaking, there has to be one thing that doesn't need to be caused by something else. Because everything else we see is the effect of something. So there has to be one thing that did not need to be caused to get this all going. And that's what's true of God. He is uncaused. By nature, he is self-existent. And there's a few ways that Scripture describes God's self-existence to us. And I want to show us several portions of Scripture that speak of this. In Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. So Moses is... Now put yourself in Moses' shoes. Moses is going to be you know coming to the people of Israel... His, his people by birth, and he's going to be telling them, listen, um, I've been divinely appointed to lead you out of slavery and toward a land that God has promised you. And you can imagine the people looking at him saying, like, really? On what authority? You know, on what authority? Could you imagine standing up in front of a group of people and saying, hey, everybody, I know you guys don't know me super well, all right? And I know that this might have some awkwardness to it. However, I would like you all to leave everything that you're familiar with and come follow me to a place that none of us has ever seen yet. Who's ready? Right? And Moses is thinking through these things, and he's wondering, you know, like, how's this going to work? And when you look at the scriptures related to Moses, Moses is highly respected by people throughout the world to this day. But when you look at Moses and his initial reactions to some of the things that God was teaching him or telling him, Moses expresses a lot of insecurity. You know, he tells the Lord, Lord, I, you know, I, how am I supposed to speak in front of a group of people? How am I supposed to do this? By the way, I asked one of the children down in the nursery today if they'd be willing to speak for me today. She looked a little panicky. She didn't seem prepared, right? Um, uh, but her mother thought it was funny, so that was a win, right? Uh, but at the same time, you know, it's this idea of I'm going to have to stand up in front of a group of people and I'm going to have to tell them things... And Moses said, you know, I, I'm not, a, listen, I'm not an eloquent speaker. I'm not somebody that I can't do that sort of stuff. Um, and then Moses is also wondering, all right, but people are going to ask me, like, where do I get the authority to say, uproot your life and come follow me into the wilderness? Where do I get the authority to do that? And God says to him, this is what you're, this is what you're to tell them. Tell them, this is who sent you. I am who I am. He says, say this to the people of, of Israel. I am has sent me to you. So what is God saying to Moses? What is he revealing to Moses? He's talking about his eternal nature. He's speaking to the fact that he is self-existent. Not I was, not I will be. He says, tell them I am. Meaning that he always is. He's uncaused, self-existent. Now that's hard to wrap your mind around, isn't it? Again, because we we were created, we have a point of origin. I think it's a lot easier for me to think about things from the perspective of it continuing forever. But the thought of something always being in existence, that could be a little bit challenging. But the Lord was revealing to Moses, this is who, who you're to tell them has sent you. I am has sent you. The Lord also says in Isaiah 46.9, remember the former things of old. For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. Now, what's the Lord revealing when we look at a portion of scripture like that? Again, we talked about this a group of weeks ago, but the Lord's saying, I'm unique. There's no one like me. Meaning, every, you know, we could apply this in this context about the, about God's self-existence in saying, alright, God is self-existent. There is nobody else that is self-existent. There's nobody else that is uncaused. Everybody else is caused. Everything else is created. But God is self-existent. He's saying, look, there is none like me. And then when you look at Revelation chapter 1, verse 17, the Apostle John says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last. Again, in that context, what was Christ trying to illustrate? He's explaining, I've always been... I always will be. His eternal nature. It's like, fear not. Don't be afraid, but let me tell you who I am. And so Christ reveals that, and He speaks of that. Now, personally speaking, I have to tell you that I take a great degree of comfort in the fact that God is self-existent and the fact that God is not dependent on His creation. Meaning, there is nothing He needs from me, and there is nothing He needs from you. Have you ever heard people say, the only thing God ever needed was our love. And that sounds beautiful, doesn't it? The only thing he ever needed was our love. Like, like, he, like he had a need. God doesn't have any needs. He's self-existent. Even consider the fact that, that um, our Lord has existed from eternity past, as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in perfect love, in perfect community. There is nothing He needs from me. There is nothing He needs from you. The Lord has no lack. He has no dependence. He, did, he there There is nothing He needs from what He's created. He's made His creation for His glory and for His good pleasure, but He would have been fine if He didn't. But yet He still chose to do so. And He doesn't need anything from me or you. There are things He delights to see in your life and delights to see in my life. He rejoices when we learn that the point for which we were created was to glorify Him. He facilitates great things in our lives like this, but He didn't create us because He had a lack. He didn't create us because He was dependent on us. He created us for His glory and good pleasure. There is nothing He needs from His creation. He is self-existent. He has no area of lack no area of dependence on his creation. And that being the case, he who has no lack is able to graciously supply us with everything that we need. There's nothing he lacks. He's self-existent and he's graciously able to supply us with everything that we need. Why is that comforting to me? And why is that comforting probably to so many of us in this room? Well, I could speak from a personal standpoint and say it's comforting to me because it reminds me that when I'm praying, I'm not praying to somebody with weaknesses and fallibilities. I'm not praying to somebody that's fallible. I'm praying to the one who sustains what he has made. I'm praying to the one who does not require external forces to care for him. I, on the other hand, am completely dependent on the gracious hand of God to supply what I need. And when I acknowledge that, Something good happens in my mind and in my heart. When I acknowledge that I am completely dependent on the Lord to supply what I need, and when I acknowledge that He is the ultimate source of life and sustenance, what I can experience is a healthy sense of rest, a healthy sense of peace, knowing that I don't have to do His job for Him. I can rely on Him. He is my peace. He is my provider. He is the one who joyfully promises to care for me. Our self-existent God cares for His creation. He has no lack. He has no area of need. He supplies what we need, and He's joyful about doing so. A belief in an accidental universe that happened by accident, just somehow... Mysteriously sparked by an impersonal force with no compassion and no oversight and no merciful provision does not produce a sense of rest. And it does not produce a sense of peace. In fact, it actually does the opposite and it produces a lot of things that provide or that um, provoke counseling needs within our minds and within our hearts, because it forces us to become overly self-reliant. And when you're overly self-reliant, what also starts to happen is you develop anxieties about the fact that when you're self-reliant, you start noticing the limitations of your reliance. You start noticing your personal limitations that prevent you from doing all that needs to be done and prevent you from caring for everything that needs to be cared for. And if you believe that everything comes down to you or everything comes down to your fellow man, that starts producing anxiety in your life because you start realizing, wait a second, we have limitations and we can't actually accomplish what needs to be accomplished. And it starts producing confusion and it starts to produce fear and worry and anxiety in our minds and in our hearts. And in fact, many of the causes, when you look at the root cause of many of the causes that that quite a few people in our generation pledge their lives to, You look at at what causes those or what motivates many of those things. Many of those things actually stem from a lack of faith in God, the self-existent, uncaused cause. Because mankind starts to think, wait a second, we've got to right every wrong. We've got to remedy every problem. It all depends on us. It all comes down to us. No one's going to help us. We've got to fix it. We're, you know, In every generation, I just went to a graduation just a few months ago, and I think in every graduation speech I go to, every generation says, we're going to change the world, right? And someone got out there and said, we're going to change the world. And here's me in my sarcastic clap over in the bleachers. Finally. The class of 2018 is going to be the one that does it. When I graduated in 94, we thought we were going to, we totally dropped the ball. I thought our generation 24 years ago was going to do it. And then we got all caught up in the internet and forgot what we were supposed to do. (laughs) Thankfully, the class of 2018 is going to change the world. No, it's not, okay? You're going to do good things. But the world does not depend on you. We have a self-existent provider, a self-existent creator who is not dependent on his creation. And it's not us that's going to fix what's wrong with this world. It's him. Now, he'll work through you to do some amazing things and to bless people in great ways. But don't become mistaken about where the source of our power is or where the source of wisdom is or where the one who actually rights the wrongs happens to be. It's not us, it's Him. And a man-centered perspective toward creation is not a healthy perspective. It actually produces anxiety. It actually produces worry when we start to think that everything around us is somehow dependent on us because it's absolutely not. We have have a creation point. We were brought into existence by a self-existent creator. And He's able to provide for what we need. And He delights when we rely on Him. And He He finds joy in giving our hearts and our minds peace as we learn to trust in Him in the midst of all the things that we face and deal with. Now something else that Scripture reveals to us about the Lord, in addition to the fact that He's self-existent, and this is where we're going to conclude our study of His attributes. We're going to look at a few additional things related to who God is in, in coming weeks. But this is the last attribute I want us to look at. And that's the fact that God is sovereign. God is sovereign. Well, what does it mean when we say that God is sovereign? I remember when I was, uh, in college, and I was teaching a group of campers, uh, at a, a summer camp that I worked at, and they were all sitting around, I was doing the evening devotions, and I tossed out the fact that God is sovereign. And I used that term, and then I immediately realized I didn't know how to define it. I had just heard it a bunch of times, I was like, wait a second. I'm using this term to describe God because I've heard other people use this term to describe God. And then I kind of had to backtrack my words a little bit and use other descriptors because I was like, wait a second, I don't have a clear understanding in my mind of what it means to say that God is sovereign. So at that point, I decided to find out. Why am I using this term? Why have I heard other people use this term? Well, look at what it tells us in Job chapter 42, verses 1 and 2. In that passage of Scripture, it says this, Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. that interesting? So Job is believed to be the oldest book of the Bible. And in the oldest book of the Bible, we have Job saying, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. What he's saying is God is sovereign. And to say that God is sovereign, effectively, what it means is this. It means that he rules the universe, and that he's in control of what he has created. That's what sovereignty is. That's the idea. He, he rules the universe. He's in control of what he has created. He possesses full authority to carry out his perfect plans, full authority to carry out his eternal purposes. And there is no place that you or I could go in all of creation that is not under the sovereign control of God. And so when you look at Job chapter 42, you see that Job acknowledged that reality when he speaks of God's power to do anything that he desired. He's acknowledging the fact that God is sovereign. And he also expresses in that passage that no purpose of God could be thwarted. God's purposes cannot be thwarted, again, because he's in complete control. He is sovereign. The plans of God are perfect and will be carried out in full accordance with his divine will. A, prop, uh, a very practical example of that can be read or seen in one of my favorite accounts in Scripture. I don't know if you can recall the first portion of the Bible uh, that you read. And I guess technically, if I'm super technical, this wasn't from the Bible directly, but it was a Bible story given to me as a child from someone in the church that I grew up in. They gave me a Bible story, one of those small books meant for kids with lots of pictures, But it was a story of Joseph from the book of Genesis. It's the first Bible story I ever remember reading. And I used to read that book over and over and over and over again. And if you're familiar with it, you'll recognize the things that I'm saying. But that that story shows God's sovereignty in a variety of ways. Because when you look at Joseph's life, you can see that Joseph was loved deeply by his father Jacob. Joseph's brothers grew very jealous with favoritism, or with, you know, observing the favoritism that that Joseph was shown. So they sold him into slavery. And then they told their father that he was dead. And in the process of events, as Joseph is sold into slavery to a band of Ishmaelite traders, Joseph, through a, a series of circumstances, ends up in Egypt, where, again, through some divinely orchestrated events, he ends up being in second command, or second in command to Pharaoh. He ends up ruling the country. So there's only one authority higher than his in all of Egypt, and it's Pharaoh. And the Lord revealed during that time, uh, through dreams, that there would be great famine in the world. So Joseph helped prepare the Egyptians so that they would not die of starvation. And what ends up happening is people from all other nations, including Joseph's family, start coming to Egypt for food. And during that time, Joseph speaks to his brothers about all that's taken place. And he tells them that God had foreordained the chain of events that had occurred in his life for their benefit and for the benefit of the world. Even though they treated Joseph with malice, the sovereign God who is Lord of heaven and earth meant it for the good of millions of people. In fact, in Genesis chapter 50, verses 19 and 20, it says this, But Joseph said to them, Do not fear. For am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So you have Joseph looking at the circumstances of his life and recognizing that God's sovereign. By the way, have you ever done that? Have you ever traced the hand of God in your life and recognized that the Lord delights to take situations that look pretty bleak and turn them around for His glory and for your benefit? And Joseph, as he's looking at his life, he's like, look, I can't be mad about it. There's no point in being mad about it in regard to you guys. There's no point in being mad about it or or like kicking my, my you know heels in the dirt and complaining against God. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. And it all worked out. I just needed a little bit more time to see how it was going to work out. By the way, if you're going through a trial right now, that principle holds true. It's a universal principle for God's children. He works out every detail of your life for His glory and your good. Whatever trial, whatever difficulty, whatever thing is stretching you right now that may seem unpleasant and difficult and might elicit emotion or anger or sadness or whatever it brings from you, whatever it is, it's a universal principle for God's children that He works these details out for His glory and your good. And He'll make you stronger in a variety of ways through it And he'll teach you more things about himself in the midst of it. And Joseph testified to that. And he could actually see that millions of people were being saved through the orchestration of events that God had orchestrated in his life. So it's like, why even complain about it? God's sovereign. God's in control. He's working these details out. But let me ask you a question about sovereignty that I'm assuming at some point in your life you may have asked this question, but maybe you didn't, so I'm just going to ask it. If God is sovereign, so if he's in complete control, if he rules over what he has created, if God is sovereign, why is there sin and why is there suffering in this world? If God's sovereign, why is there sin? Why is there suffering in this world? I thought he's in complete control of what he created. I thought he ruled every corner and aspect and being in this universe. So why is there sin? Why is there suffering? I know a man right now who's wrestling with this question. His brother was just diagnosed with a terminal illness. And he's wondering, why why is this happening? You know, why is this something that's happening? So again, if God is sovereign, why is there sin? Why is there suffering? And if a sovereign God let's ask the follow-up question too before we even address it. And if a sovereign God would allow sin and would allow suffering in this present world, does their presence mean that He's not good? The sovereign God, who we're saying is in complete control of what He's created, would allow sin and suffering in this world. Does it mean He's not sovereign at all? Or does it mean he's not good at all? Or does it mean something else? Well, God is sovereign. But not all things that occur have been caused by him. So let's take sin, for example. Sin exists, but God did not create it. In fact, I would contend that sin being the effect of rebellion against God isn't so much a creation as it is a distortion. So basically, sin is the effect of taking the perfect relationship that God created between Himself and His creation and marring it and banging it up. You know, when I, I look outside, I see some nice cars. Some of you got new cars this past year. Um, I drive uh, a car that... I When I bought it, it was like... It's about two or three years old, but I still treat it like it's new. And it's bugging me that there's a little rust forming on the back wheel wells. I, I guess I need to, if someone knows someone good that fixes rust, let me know, because I need to get that fixed, because I still plan on driving it for a while. I've been driving that car for 11 years. I don't know how many more years I'm going to drive it, but I'm going to try and see how much I can eke out of it. It's never broken yet, not even once. But you know what's disappointing? When you look on the sides of it, there's some scratches. As things went, you know, as people were carrying things and went by or other things went by, it's got some scratches along the edge. Now, would you say that scratch is a creation? Or would you describe that scratch as damage being done to what was created? You can debate that. But I think in its essence, it's damage being done to what was created. Right? It's not bringing something out of nothing into existence. It's damaging something that was created. That's how I view sin. Sin is damage being done to something that was created. So sin, in my mind, isn't so much a creation as it is a distortion. So when Satan was created, back when he was referred to as Lucifer, he was a glorious angel, and um, he was free to rebel against God. And so he chose to do so. Then you have Adam. Adam was created. and Likewise, he was free to rebel against God. And he chose to do so. Even though pre-warned that that decision would produce death. And yet Adam still chose to do it. So the sin and the suffering that are present in this world, they exist as a logical effect of those acts of rebellion. God has temporarily allowed them, but He didn't cause them. If we're going to blame anyone, let's blame ourselves. Humanity caused it. God did not cause it. In fact, Scripture makes it clear that it's actually God's sovereign plan to remedy what mankind has damaged. His plan is to remedy it, meaning from eternity past, Scripture reveals to us that from eternity past, God the Father planned our salvation. And then God the Son came to this earth and accomplished it. And presently, God the Holy Spirit continues to apply the effects of salvation to our lives daily. Love what we're told in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. It says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It's this idea of the Lord preparing these things in eternity past. Likewise, it's God's sovereign plan to restore this fallen world. Creationally currently moans while it awaits its restoration. While it awaits this this the fact that the Lord's revealed that He plans to perfectly restore it to the perfection that it enjoyed before the fall of mankind. Because in the fall of mankind, all creation was subsequently cursed. In Romans chapter 8, it tells us this. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So right now creation is groaning, waiting for the Lord to restore all things. And he's promised that it's part of his sovereign plan to do so. It's also God's sovereign plan to welcome mankind into his presence for all eternity and to restore the relationship that was enjoyed by Adam and Eve before they sinned against him. I love what it tells us in Revelation 21.3. It says, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. So it's God's sovereign plan to restore His creation. It's God's sovereign plan to offer salvation to humanity. It's God's sovereign plan to live in fellowship with those that He has created for all eternity. Those who trust in Jesus Christ receive these things as a gift. So let me say this as, as we finish up. As we dwell on this attribute of God, as we dwell on the fact that God is indeed sovereign, I believe that, again, our hearts should be prompted to be at peace. Just as our hearts can be prompted to be at peace through the knowledge of God's self-existence, I think through the knowledge of His sovereignty, we can experience peace. We don't have to control everything and everyone around us. We don't have to control those things. We don't, Do not you ever try and control people? How does it work? I have attempted that from time to time. It doesn't work. I, I'm I've basically given up on that at this point. And by the way, if you ever want to experience an experience that will teach you that you cannot control people no matter how hard you try, have four children. Have four children. They will be great teachers to you. They are like the professors in my home. It's like, children, please remind me today that I have no control over your life. We will be happy to remind you, Father. And they remind me of that daily. And so I've learned that I don't have control over other people. I can't. I can maybe influence and I can encourage. But the truth is I can't control. And as we dwell on the fact that God is in complete control, we can have peace about the fact that we don't have to control other people. In fact, in regard to your kids, if I could just put a little thought on that there, sometimes one of the best things that you can do is pray for your children to your sovereign God. Lord, do a work in their heart, do a work in their lives, because you can control those things that I can't control, so I submit them over to your Lordship and your care. And what's the Lord delighted to do? Answer that prayer. I believe He answers that prayer. So we don't have to control people. We don't have to control all our circumstances around us, and in fact, we can't do that. It's not something we can accomplish anyway, so why torture ourselves with the thought that, that we can? Because we cannot. God is in control. And he makes a point to turn all sorts of situations in our lives around that seem like they were meant for our harm into circumstances that actually work for our ultimate good. That means he strengthens us through our trials. He grants us joy in the midst of our pain. He blesses us with hope when it would be tempting to feel hopeless. Our self-existent God is sovereign. And our sovereign God is good. Let's pray. Lord, thank You for Your Word. And thank You for the things that You reveal to us in it. Thank You for the fact that in Your sovereignty, You have planned the only option for us to experience a restoration of relationship with You. In eternity past... In your foreknowledge, you knew that we would rebel against you. You also knew that you were going to give us a second chance through your Son, Jesus Christ, who took our sin upon Himself when He came to this earth. He atoned for our sin, rose from the grave, defeated sin, Satan, and death, and now offers us new life and forgiveness through faith in Him. Father, we're grateful that this has been a provision that you have made for us through your Son. We know we don't deserve it but we're grateful to be the beneficiaries of it. And Lord, we pray that throughout the course of this week, when we think about some of the things that we've reflected on today, when we think about the fact that that as Your Word tells us, that You are self-existent, that we can rest in the fact that You do not have a need. Creation doesn't supply You with something that You lacked. Rather, it's the other way around. You sustain us. You make provision for us. And your resources to do so are unlimited. So we're grateful for that. Likewise, Lord, we're grateful that as we think about the Scriptures we've looked at today, that we can reflect on the fact that you are sovereign. You are in complete control over what you've created. You have authority over all creation. And your plans will not be thwarted. Your plans to save humanity will not be stopped. Your plans to restore this creation will not be stopped. Your plans to foster perfect, eternal fellowship with You, with all who trust in Jesus Christ, Your Son, will not be stopped. It will not be thwarted. So Lord, we're grateful for this fact. And we're grateful that as much as we're tempted to try and control things that really are not under our control, that we could look at what our script, what your Scripture, what your Word says about our relationship with you and your dealings with this world, and we can take peace from the fact that you are in control and you're working all things out for the good of those that love you. So, Lord, thank you for these reminders from your Word today. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your grace. We know, Lord, we don't deserve any of these things, but we're so grateful that you not only accomplish these things in our lives, but you also make sure that the knowledge of them has reached our eyes and our ears as we look at your word together. We're grateful for these things, Lord. We thank you for your presence with us today. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the Informal Bible Study. As I mentioned at the start of the episode, we'd encourage you to stop by our website, desirejesus.com dot com where you can sign up for our newsletter list and you could also utilize the many resources we have available on the site and again, I'd also appreciate feedback from you. You can find my email address in this episode's description, and I'd love to hear which format you prefer, whether you prefer the teaching to be done in studio or whether you like live content like we provided today. So please let me know because it will influence what we decide to do with this podcast in coming weeks. But that's it for us today. Thanks again for listening. We hope you have a wonderful day and a wonderful week. And we look forward to catching up with you again right here next Monday. Take care. What do you do when the world around you is falling apart?